Welcome to the podcast service of Sydney's FM 103.2. Available on the web at fm1032.com.au. Tonight is really an extension of the last couple of reflections when we saw several things about the theme of God's coming judgment. Firstly, judgment language is not to be taken literally. Descriptions of judgment as darkness, fire, a battlefield, and even as hell or Gehenna are all metaphors for a serious but completely unknown reality. Having said this, secondly, judgment language is not to be taken lightly. It's true that the theme of judgment has been abused by preachers and is very unpopular in wider society, but we mustn't shy away from the theme as a result. If Christ is our teacher, we must allow his perspective to shape ours. And he spoke about hell more than anyone. Eleven of the twelve references to hell in the New Testament come from him. And as we also saw last time, he is more than just a teacher of judgment. Jesus is in fact the agent of divine judgment. Jesus claimed to be the one who will separate the sheep from the goats, Matthew 25. He is the one who will tread the winepress of the wrath of God, Revelation 19. And this led to the fourth and final thing we saw last time. Judgment is according to deeds. This was perhaps a little perplexing at first, but the scriptures are clear that God will judge the unbelieving world not in a blind and arbitrary act of rage, but in a measured, proportional and just manner. According to Jesus in Luke 12:47, some will receive many blows on the day of judgment and others will receive few. God's justice demands it. This leads naturally to what I want to talk about over the next couple of nights, the reasons for God's coming judgment. But first, a couple of background comments. The first has to do with the timing of God's judgment. Does God judge here and now in earthquakes, wars and bad hair days, Or is the judgment of God entirely future? Well, at different stages in the biblical revelation, there were different answers to that question. In the early Old Testament literature, say Exodus or Joshua or 1 and 2 Samuel, it seems that just about all of God's judgment was in the here and now. In Exodus 11, we see the punishment of the Egyptians. In Deuteronomy 9, we see the punishment of the Canaanites. And in 2 Kings 24, we read about God punishing Israel itself. Judgment in each of these cases was through the events of history. By the end of the Old Testament literature, though, the prophets are starting to speak about the suspension of divine judgment. Whereas God formally delivered his verdict within historical events. Now he has fixed a day at the climax of history when he will overthrow evil and establish justice. In Old Testament speak, this was known simply as the day of the Lord. You can read about it for yourself in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14 and Zechariah chapter 14 verses 1 to 9 and Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. By the New Testament period, This future day of the Lord is the default way of thinking about God's judgment. Now the Bible is explicit 
that while God is still at perfect liberty to judge within historical events, he has, as an act of grace, suspended his judgment until the very end, giving people an opportunity to repent and seek his mercy. That's exactly what 2 Peter chapter 3 says. But if that opportunity is resisted to the very end, the warning of the New Testament is clear. As the Apostle Paul says to an unrepentant hypocrite in Romans 2 verse 3, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. In New Testament thought, in contrast to much of the Old Testament, God's judgment is almost entirely future. This is not to say God never uses the events of history as punishment. I'm sure he does, but only he knows which events these are. From the New Testament's perspective, the judgment of God, epitomized in the idea of Gehenna or hell, is to be thought of as fundamentally future. My second background comment has to do with the way we think about God's judgment. When I first became a Christian, I think I pictured God's judgment purely in terms of morality, as if God were the strict schoolmaster in the sky and we were the naughty children. There was probably a reason I thought of things in that way. But this morality paradigm blinded me, I think, to what is perhaps the Bible's fundamental perspective on judgment. Judgment is about putting things right. It's about overthrowing what is wrong with the world and establishing what is good. Therefore, God is not to be thought of as the strict schoolmaster, ensuring we all keep his rules. He's more like the heroic justice commissioner who vows to root out endemic corruption and expose all abuses of power. This justice paradigm is perfectly stated in the description of the Messiah found in the foundational prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. Listen to this. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Overthrowing evil and establishing justice is the main business of the divinely appointed judge, the Messiah. So what are the things God intends to put right on the day of judgment. We could, of course, be here all night, well, perhaps for the rest of next week as well, looking up all the threatening passages in the Bible about this or that evil. But I reckon it's possible and even helpful to identify three 
dominant, recurring themes. Three principal objects of future judgment. Three corruptions in the world that God is going to put right. They are idolatry, religious hypocrisy, and the oppression of the needy. I'll deal with the first of these in the rest of tonight's reflection, and the other two next time. The first main reason for God's coming judgment has to do with the corruptions of human worship. From start to finish, the Bible pledges to overthrow every human attempt to replace the Creator with things. This is idolatry. From the Bible's point of view, idolatry, the worship of a created thing over the Creator Himself, is a perversion of our calling as human beings. It is a corruption of our office as those made in the image of God. There are all sorts of Old Testament passages that promise this judgment on idol worshippers. References include Exodus 20 verse 4, um, 1 Kings 14 verse 7, 2 Kings 17 verse 6, Isaiah 2 verse 6, Jeremiah 7 verse 30. But the theme continues on into the New Testament with equal seriousness. The Apostle Paul speaks of God's judgment on idol worshippers in the words of Romans 1, 18 to 25. Let me read the text to you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. To elevate the things of creation to the status of an object of worship is in biblical thought a kind of high treason. It's an unnatural and inexcusable suppression of the most obvious truth in the world, that behind the beauty and complexity of the created order is a creative mind worthy of all our praise and love. There is, of course, a degree of idolatry in some of the world religions today. But I wouldn't want us to be too hasty in assuming that idolatry was just, say, a Hindu problem. The Bible is clear that any devotion to created things, instead of worshipping the Creator himself, is idolatry. It's in this context that Colossians 3.5 describes greed, the lust for possessions, as a form of idolatry. Let me read the text to you. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Anyone who desires the things of creation over the Creator himself is an idolater and worthy of judgment, says the Bible. 
Praise God, though. He has suspended that judgment, allowing all of us the time to turn away from our religious or materialistic idolatry and find his wonderful mercy in Christ. We hope you enjoyed this FM 103.2 podcast. To listen to more great audio, visit fm1032.com.au.